Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm very, very happy to be joined by Ashley Hall, trumpet teacher and manager of career coaching at the Longy School of Music at Bard College. Did I do that right? You did. Ah, take four, <laughs> finally. Um, this is awesome. Uh, Ashley and I actually recorded an episode uh, about a week ago together. It was an awesome episode, but that episode was more of a uh, episode of me unloading my thoughts about the universe and Ashley just saying, "Yeah, that sounds pretty good." So instead of doing that, happens though when you interview a life coach. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Why am I sharing all these things? I don't really know what is happening right now. <laughs> so what we're gonna try to do is highlight Ashley and all the amazing things she's doing, and we'll save my own whatevers for a different time. So uh, first of all, thank you for being willing to do this a second time. Uh, it really means a lot to me, and so I appreciate that. Thanks for being here again. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. (laughs) So we will start. Uh, Let's just go from the beginning. I liked the way we did it before. So if you kind of want to share just about your early life in the trumpet and in music and kind of what it was for you, uh, the good, the bad, all those kinds of things. Sure. I grew up in Southwest Virginia in a really small town called Withville. Um, I come from a musical family, although my dad is quite famous for saying that myself and my sister are the prime cases in which the father's genes did not dilute the mother's genes. <laughs> he <laughs> could carry a tune, um, but he was not a professional musician. My mom yeah, sure. has degrees in music ed and was a French horn player. And so music was always a part of our home. I remember very early on having trumpets in my hands and trombones in my hands, and I was always doing music. It was a thing that was a part of our life. Um, I remember vacation trips where we would play recorder trios and my dad would just drive very peacefully. I don't know how he did it, honestly. (laughs) I would not be that calm about that. No, no. I, (laughs) now that I have two kids myself, I don't want to hear recorder duets of any kind in the car, let alone in a large space. So (laughs) Lord bless my dad. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Um, but I grew up in this small town and, I would say, I mean, I found the trumpet, it was the cornet actually in the fifth grade. Um, My mom, because she has a background in brass, was like, why don't you just start this instrument a little earlier than we start in the band program, which we started in sixth grade. So she gave me my first few lessons and it really was a natural fit. Now, I'm not a prodigy by any um, stretch of the imagination, but it really did feel like my voice, especially the cornet. And I think I also grew up listening to a lot of Herbert L. Clark, and I had that that sound in my head. And so it um, it felt like that was what I was supposed to do. I mean, really early. Um, so in the sixth grade, that's when the band traditionally starts. You learn instruments. But our band director asked me if I would be willing to join the high school band and march in the band. So from the sixth grade all the way up until 12th grade, I marched with the high school marching band. This is a very small, small band, 60 people. Um, And, you know, I'm thankful for that experience. It um, taught me a lot about the value of working hard 
to get better at something. And we were a really good small marching band and a good small town band program, really. What I will say, though, that is probably true of a lot of places is that competition really does drive your improvement. And for me, it was a big part of our every week existence, the competitions, the winning trophies, the getting better. Um, and in some ways it's helpful, but in other ways, I feel like I equated music with, with competition. And that's something I've been working on later in my life to sort of undo and creatively recover from, because I feel like music is such a beautiful gift. And when it's so deeply equated with your worth, which it kind of became for me, um, it can be challenging. So that was a little bit of my high school. I found the National Trumpet Competition really young. It was the second year of the National Trumpet Competition in 1994. And my teacher at the time, Mark Alderman, heard about this competition and said, I think you should do it. They have a junior high division, so why don't you go? So I was working on my first cornet solo at the time, Herbert L. Clark's Stars in a Velvety Sky. I could triple tongue pretty well, and I had the virtuosity piece going for me. And I went to the National Trumpet Competition and won the junior high division in the seventh grade. And that really set me up well, actually. I met so many people, even in the seventh and eighth grade, that became mentors for me, future colleagues of mine, and really set, set me up for what my career ended up becoming and is to this day. Um, in the eighth grade, I like this story because it really paints the naivete of my small Southwest upbringing. They invited me back because I'd already won the junior high division to be a guest soloist with an ensemble by the name of the Capital Winds. And I remember walking out on stage to play the third movement of the Hummel on a B flat trumpet. Cause that's all we had. Mm -hmm. And the, I don't have perfect pitch. And so the wind ensemble oboist played, a concert A. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, well, that's the concert B flat. Obviously, they're giving me a tuning note. So I played a lovely concert B flat. And I hear this audible gasp from the, <laughs> the room of trumpet players. At once pity and at once like, oh, this little sweet tiny girl from Southwest Virginia doesn't know that wind ensembles and orchestras tunes to an A. So I turned to the oboist and I said, please, could you play a concert B flat for me. And she did graciously. Oh, very and sweet. I went on and played. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in this culture, I'll just say. National Trumpet Competition was a huge part of my upbringing. I would say that competition really saw me grow up. When I saw Denny Edelbrock last year when I was a guest artist, it's like no time has passed. He still calls yeah. me Ashley Renee Hall from Whitfield, Virginia. <laughs> it feels like I'm back in seventh grade and he's calling my name. Um, but I do say that I met so many, as I said, so many of my friends in the field, so many um, professors that I now engage with found out about me way back then. And it has been so incredibly valuable. So that was a little bit of my early life. And then in 1999, I went to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music to do a bachelor's in trumpet performance. And I thought I would also do music education. So I started as a double major. <laughs> Back in those times when you were told that you always needed to have a backup, as if it was like this, like, when or if you don't make it in music, you always want to have a backup. And for me... Oh, it's so sad that that was the case. And it's yeah. still a bit of the mantra, but 
we're shifting that now. Um, so that was for me what music ed was. And so I dropped that my second year and cause I knew I didn't want to be a classroom teacher. And, um, I had a great experience at CCM. I studied with Alan Siebert my first year, and then I had Marie Speziali for the final two years that she was at CCM before she went to IU, and then she went down to Rice after that. And I'm so thankful I had her um, experience and mentoring and friendship now. Um, She was an incredible teacher. And then my final year, which was a really pivotal year for me and my trumpet playing life, I studied with Philip Collins, who was at the time principal of the Cincinnati Symphony. Um, And I think one thing to note about my trumpet journey, because I did a lot of things pretty naturally well, I wasn't, and I was so young, I wasn't really willing to address some major inefficiencies in my playing. And so I sort of made excuses because I was good at at the charisma and the flash and that, that I just assumed, well, I can play Carnival of Venice really well but I probably will never be able to play high. And what I would do as a trumpet player is basically like make my lips really dry, screw in the mouthpiece to create this very open, manipulated, wide open aperture. And I could play low and I could have this gorgeous sound in the middle register. But as I would ascend into the upper register, it was basically like taking a donut and squishing it between two (laughs) plexiglass sheets, you know? Yeah, right, right. And I just thought it was, well, it's just... That's my lot in life. <laughs> and so in my senior year, when I was studying with Phil, it really came to a crash. I remember it was September 29th and it was 2002. And I went into the practice room at CCM and I couldn't play above the staff. I sounded like a beginner. And it was the first time really where the inconsistencies came to such a dramatic head that I knew um I had to make some kind of a change. Um, But even at that point, I really wasn't willing to address the inefficiencies because what would happen is it would repair. And I will say at that time also, I put so much stock in how my lips felt and all of the endurance was based on physical lip strength. And so if it would repair, I could play well and no one thought there were any issues. And then as the repertoire level, for instance... I had to play a Pulcinella. I would do fine for the first two or three rehearsals, and then it would it would be terrible. And so I'd take a day or two off, and then I'd come back, and it would be fine. So I just thought, well, gosh, this is just what I'm going to have to deal with. I'm just going to pray and hope that, dear God, in a performance, he, like, comes through and I can perform well. And I really <laughs> did think that for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll just fast forward a few years. Um, right after— CCM. I was lucky, lucky enough to win the third trumpet job with the Dayton Philharmonic. Um, I had a great time playing with that orchestra. It was a really good first orchestra job. And I did a lot of educational shows doing that, but I still had this thing going on with my face. And I was premiering a concerto by Stephen Winteregg that was written for me. And it was in one of those big crash times where I literally couldn't play above the staff And I went to Cedarville to play the concerto for him the week before I'm supposed to premiere it with an orchestra. And he listens to me play and I can't play above a G. He's like, Ashley, what are you going to do? And (laughs) (laughs) it's a good question. I was like, well, typically what I do is I pray 
and I take a couple days off and then it just miraculously works again. And he was like, how's that system working for you? I was like, well, it makes me a little nervous when I'm shut down, but luckily, you know, it usually goes okay. Now, this was pretty flawed logic. Let's just be real. (laughs) But I still wasn't mature enough to say, huh, there has to be a different way to play that's more free, that's more consistent, that's not constantly in this repair, um, sound good, up it breaks down again thing, which was pretty hard for me on a performance anxiety, you know, level as well. Um, But I did the premiere and it did go fine. And then I finally decided, you know what, I'm not going to have a career past the age of 30 if I don't really look at these physical deficiencies in my playing. And so I asked for a leave from the orchestra. I went to school at Longy where I'm currently on faculty and I studied with um, Steve Emery, who's an amazing teacher at helping you address the mental side of clearly some of my flawed thinking and the, the real um, flawed efficiency issues of not only breathing and body alignment and posture and how my lips were completely impinged and inflexible and not receiving the air freely. And so we worked for two years together and it got better over those two years. And that was back in 2007 when I did my artist diploma and graduated from Longy. And then in 2008, I got the job with the chamber orchestra in Cincinnati. And it's been gradually since then really building new systems for mental resilience, physical consistency, and it's been getting a lot, lot better. Um, yeah, and I, I can do things now, and I don't worry <laughs> about endurance now, and I don't get tired in my face and those types of things. So that's sure. that's my trumpet arc in a, you know, short nutshell. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to stick for a second on this competition uh, discussion because I know uh, I've talked with other people who have talked about competition being something that really drives progression, innovation, you know, wanting to reach higher and higher levels. And so uh, I was curious if you thought, although competition, you were talking about, it's kind of was your identity and it possibly was driving you in a positive direction. Just like, what is your opinion about competition, the benefits of it, sort of the possible, um, the negatives or the cons of it, just like in general. So possibly someone who has spent so much time competing, uh, get like the viewpoint from, from you in this regard. Sure. So for me, competitions, as you said, were a way that um, I was inspired by other people. I met tons of amazing people colleagues. I learned repertoire. But I will say that because winning was such a big part of our high school culture, and even I had a lot of success in these competitions young, it um, got became very connected to my sense of worth and my sense of identity. And I believed that if I didn't win, that somehow I wasn't enough and I wasn't good enough and that I hadn't worked hard enough. And so it had a bit of a negative self-deprecation spiral to it that I've had to since sort of work on. Um, I went When I went back to the National Trumpet Competition in 2019 as a guest artist, all of these old feelings came back for me. And I thought to myself, and I've done a lot of work around imposter syndrome um, (laughs) and 
I remember sitting in my hotel room as I'm getting ready to go and play a couple of concertos with the Lexington Brass Band and thinking to myself, gosh, this is the 25th anniversary of my first ever appearance at NTC when I was in the seventh grade. What would I tell my 12-year-old self now as a 38-year-old trumpeter with a lot more life experience behind me? And I remember writing in my journal something to the effect of, you are enough the unique way that you play the trumpet and the way that you share your gift are important and the world needs you to be yourself and only yourself. So share your gift. And so my advice to people who are competing is to soak up the energy of these environments without letting it define whether it, I guess what the thing is, is, does it get to determine whether you feel like you have a gift that's important to share in the world, whether you are worthy, whether you are enough? And yes, somebody might play the Haydn differently than you, but the way you hi- you play the Haydn is also really important. So be authentic and really figure out what it is that you want to say and contribute because that's ultimately what we're looking for now that I'm on the judging side. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for people who own their story, have something unique to share, and aren't consumed with the I must be perfect in order to win. We're looking for someone who shares vulnerably this incredible gift that music actually is and knows that. So that's what I would say now. And I would say even now that I've been in the brass band world I love the culture of brass band because of its community and its collaborativeness. I've never been to a NABA, but I hear that those are extraordinarily fun. Um, So, yeah, I think there's a place for it as long as it's done in a healthy way. And as long as you yourself can come to a place of center and balance for what it is that you can contribute and say that's unique. Yeah, I've thought about this just about my own experience in school where you do these auditions and then there's a chair placement. And so you're inherently ranked amongst your peers. And uh, I think that I don't know of any better system really, but it also can create this, I got to get better than this person. So I get a better chair, like this sort of objective competition. And unfortunately to me, music is just not that right. It's, it's ideally in its purest sense, not competitive in nature. It's more, this is what I share. This is what you share. Um, and so I think it's everywhere. And we just, like you said, it sounds like if we could just have a good relationship with it, it can be used for good in our lives, the competition aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of Michael Levine's new initiative, Harmony Bridge. He was in the Dallas Brass, still has some connections with Dallas Brass, and basically had this experience after a concert where he went into a nursing home and played Danny Boy, and it it completely changed the way that he thought about music from there on out. And he said, what would it be like in a music education environment from the very beginning of students learning to play to have music be connected to sharing, bringing meaning to others, and creating an atmosphere where this can provide healing. And that's what he experienced. And so he created this entire curriculum that from the time that a student can play 
Twinkle Twinkle or Amazing Grace, they're out playing for other people, not for a rating of one or two or a ranking of I'm better than you, I placed higher in the chair positions, but because music has meaning. And that's really important to stay connected to. And I think one of the other things I think of, sorry to just keep talking about this, but it's so central, is that I remember because of this experience I had, I struggled with this for a long time. And I remember sitting in Tim Northcutt's office at CCM, and it was me and it was Phil DeGregg, this fantastic jazz pianist, and it was Tim Northcutt. And he shared with me this short little YouTube video that all of you can look up, Rich Madison, Music is a Gift. And essentially all it says, he was, this jazz euphonium player was dying of cancer and he was talking to a room of conservatory students. He said, you all grant immortality to composers. Bach isn't dead. Beethoven isn't dead. Duke isn't dead. With the breath of your body, you turn that musical instrument into sound and you grant immortality to these people. And I thought, gosh, if that isn't a lens shift around this, the power and relevance of music and what we can do with it. I don't know what is. And I remember weeping, thinking, this is the missing piece. This is a part of my own creative recovery as a musician Mm -hmm. because it touched me so deeply. So I recommend everyone go and look that up. It's really powerful and helpful. (laughs) Yeah, I I would completely agree. One of the struggles I feel I've experienced in my life is to use something like Mahler 5 as an example. I would listen to, you know, Bud Herseth play it and Phil Smith and whomever else, you know, all the recordings. And I'd say, I know exactly how I want this to go. I know what musical idea I want to bring across, but I couldn't play the trumpet well enough to do that yet. I wasn't consistent enough or I hadn't developed enough. And so in my world, it almost felt like it wasn't even worth it to try to do that because I couldn't do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying I feel like can still be hard, even if you totally believe it, because we still have the limitations of our own, uh, which is why we try to progress. But what would you, what would your encouragement to someone who has ideas and they do have something to say, but their their technique or whatever in this moment stops them from feeling they can really fully express themselves? Like, what would you just say to encourage someone like that? It's not trite, but it's just be patient. Be patient. Right. I mean, I think about singers and their development and that they're, they get to a place of maturity when they hit around 30, where things just start to settle. Um, and it's, it's not meant to be again, this trite comment, but it really is to be meant in the spirit of accept where you are, stay curious Trust that you're growing and keep working on developing your ears so that eventually where your ears are will catch up to where your technique is. And that's what I would say is instead of it being this like, I'll never be as good as or I'll never get to that place. How can you take that sound of Phil Smith and that sound of whoever it is and have that be your light, the thing that's pushing you forward to continue to get better. It's always about the shift, the lens shift. How are you viewing yourself in light of it? Sure. So, I mean, to dig slightly deeper, um, that is a very like sort of future minded feel, right? Like I will get there. 
What about in this moment, in this performance at NTC right now where you want to hear music to the best of your ability as a judge? Um, and I feel like I have the story I want to tell, but I'm struggling. Like, How in that moment do I give it all that I have knowing that it may not come out the way that I want it to? Like, How do I not just play defensively and say, let's just try to get through it as opposed to feeling like I'll totally go for it? Yeah. I mean, that's where the work comes in before the competition. You don't want to get to the competition stage and feel like you're still fighting your face and that you're worried about things not coming out well. And, you know, and that, again, comes down to what habits are you building? How are you reinforcing it? Um, do you feel like the way that you're practicing is yielding consistency and repeatability to where you get in that moment and you can do that from a place that feels authentic and you're not in a place of fear? Um, there are times, though, where it just goes crappy. Yeah. And and I've seen this happen so often, the the pressure or the fear or whatever it is. And in those moments, I would say it's important to just feel what you need to feel. If you need to go off stage for a little while and just cry and emote and be sad, then feel those things and take some time and then say, now what? Okay, I had that. Is this something that I want to continue to try each year? Is this important to me? If so, what will I do differently? How will I prepare differently? What will look slightly different next year as I get ready for this event, if that's really important? I don't yeah. know. I think you just have to be honest. And yeah, because there are disappointments and things don't go well. And sometimes you just crash. And I don't know, this sort of puts some things into perspective too. It doesn't mean that you're thing isn't important because it's deeply important to you, but a little bit of perspective about the fact that you were really brave to stand out there on stage. That takes a lot of dang courage. <laughs> yeah. It's to me, it sounds like a little trite, but it's so true too. Like just showing up is half the battle. You know, it, it really is for things like auditions I mean, a lot of us, myself included, would put a lot of pressure on myself and say basically like, you know, win or bust. Right. But really being willing to send the send the um, resume in and do all the work that you feel like you can do and pay the money and go, like that's that's a big step in and of itself, being able to sort of celebrate that for what it is and then still try to do your best, I think is, yeah, it's spot on for me too. Yeah, yeah. Because if you didn't have that competition or that audition, would you have pushed yourself to the place where you actually got to? And that's, as you say, something to celebrate. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, to me, this is all sort of a, it's a very holistic conversation, which is I know where like a lot of your life has taken you. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious what, if you can put words to it, what that path has looked like for you to start that conversation with yourself, essentially. Sure. Thanks. Um, let's see. It started with really getting real about my physical stuff and saying, I'm just an inefficient player and I need to come develop some systems to get better at the trumpet. I need to stop equating faith <laughs> and my relationship with God, like a little genie, if I rub it the right way, then suddenly like, poof, it's all going to be better. That's just not 
it, I had a lot of weird stuff I needed to really work through. Um, so that was the first step. And that was, you know, really tied to my trumpet life. Then I think the next big where I started to address some of the like mental resilience side and what does it mean to be joyful and whole as a human that happens to intersect with the trumpet came a little after, I think it was right after we had our daughter Morgan and she's almost eight now. I, yes, she was about eight months old. I went to Germany. I just had finished reading Susan Cain's Quiet, the power of introverts in the world that can't stop talking. I started thinking about my own path as a trumpet player, and I was being really pulled in the direction of solo work, but I was really afraid every time I would play. I was just afraid. I had so many of the, yes, I've gotten better on the instrument and I'm doing better with like endurance stuff, but I still had so many of the old baggage of it's going to crash. What if you die? Like, die in like the hypothetical sense, um, that <laughs> stuff. And, um, and I recognized that I really needed to take a major break from performing so that I could take a look at this idea of joy and this idea of how to bring the trumpet, if it even could be into my life in a way that felt in line and congruous with who I was as a human. Because what my husband would say is I would get ready for a performance and pick up the trumpet and like, I would be like nervous basket case wreck. And he was like, that's just not who you are really. So, and I thought, okay, well, I'm either going to do a different career if after these six months I decide I'm ready to put the trumpet down um, or I'll be able to pick it up from a different place. And so I took six months off completely. I got back from Germany. I put the horn away. I touched it maybe a few times. I did um, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and the type of work that's called Rosen body work, which essentially just is sort of like massage therapy, but it's more a type of therapy where the practitioner senses where you're holding on to either negative energy or trauma or you're holding or protecting. And we got into some work in those sessions around like this protective shell I had around my heart, around high notes, around um, body image, around a lot of different things. And I just started to peel back those layers. And the first thing, this is just may sound weird, but on this like massage table, I said for the first time out loud, I can play high on the trumpet. And I started to cry. It was weird. It was connected to my heart. It was connected to my body. It was like all locked up. And then finally I was able to release it. And I remember thinking, gosh, just to even say those words out loud had a certain amount of power. Um, I, I then had this ability cognitively to like go to the trumpet and say, huh, if it's possible for people to actually do this efficiently, what will I do? If I can play high, how will I build systems that are healthy and that actually work? Um, so after those six months, um, I felt like I was ready to practice again. And I slowly came back to performing. I performed for the first time on Easter Sunday and that felt good. And I felt 
balanced. And then I had a couple of really successful performances. I remember one of the best ones was the Toot Suite. It was terrifying because the Toot Suite is super high. If any of you know it, there's tons of piccolo. Um, And I've always loved the piece. And I really built some efficient systems that allowed me to trust the good habits to where when I got in performance, I was able to do it from a really good place of preparedness. So that was big. Um, But that break was really important. And then I started to think, well, what would it be like for me to start to do more of this work with others? I have been working through this, as I said, mental resilience side for a while. I did a lot of Brene Brown work and reading The Gifts of Imperfection, which deals a lot with women in shame at first, but any of her books later daring greatly, power to lead, all of them, deal with this power this power that is in owning your story and the power of vulnerability. And I recognize that in me sharing my story with the trumpet world, but in the broader sense, it gave others the safety and the space to be able to own theirs and look inward too. And to be like, wait, I struggle with that too. And then it sort of creates this environment of safety. Um, So I thought at that point I would go into clinical counseling, thinking that that's the work I wanted to do with with music students in the future. So I did a minor in clinical psych, and I thought I'll go the marriage and family route because that's something I'm really passionate about. Maybe I could do it with musicians. And I continued to have trumpet teaching jobs along the way, but still felt really called to this work this deeper human work with musicians, because I feel like we don't take enough space in conservatory to really address these other sides of ourselves. We get locked in and he's like, I must play six hours a day (laughs) and I'm going to sell my soul to the trumpet. And that's all there is to it. And then you get out into the real world and you're like, Oh, I'm not that happy. Wait, what happened like around me? And so I thought that's the direction I would go. And then I started a master's in, clinical uh, marriage and family counseling. And then we decided that we were going to move to Boston. And at that point, um, my path with the Longy School of Music just intersected at the right time. And I found life coaching. And for me, this life coaching work and all the different speaking and presenting that I get to do both on the trumpet side and on this other side, this wellness side has come full circle. And coaching is a better fit for me than the clinical psych was because I didn't really want to spend a ton of time getting into people's past and trauma and deep mental health things. There are people who are really gifted at that, but but because I'm a deeply empathetic person, it sucks me in a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for me to stay external. So I found coaching and, and I could talk more about that program that I get to run, but it, um, that's, that's my path. That's my, been my trajectory to this, where I am now. And, um, and I did a bunch of other things along the way, but that gives you a general arc for yeah, where yeah. I am today. I have just a few sort of general questions and then one specific question. I would assume you feel that you are living sort of an existence in terms of happiness, contentment, peace, that you possibly didn't even really know would be possible X amount of years ago, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Do you feel like that's a true or a false statement? I would say it is a partially true statement. I would say 
I'm deeply in touch with how things around me affect me and I'm able to to go deep and process what I need in order to be as balanced as I can in the moment. So I wouldn't say I'm always happy or I'm always joyful. Yeah, I suppose what I mean is like, you know, when you're someone who's done this kind of work, before you do the work, it's hard to comprehend what your life will look like after you do the work. Sure. Like that, you don't really, I couldn't have really envisioned this version of myself. Yeah. Because it's like, I didn't think that I would be a person who could be at peace always. Yeah. No matter what was happening, right? And then the other question I would have for you is, do you feel that this understanding that you have of being deeply in touch with how you're feeling and being able to work your way through it, do you feel that that struggle, that six months off, the struggles with your instrument are what sort of, obviously what started it, but what guided it and possibly what caused, like that's the sort of the catalyst for it. I'm assuming that's something you believe. Yeah. I mean, to the point of like, I did the work and I'm here. I would say I'm still doing the work every day. Yeah. I mean, let's just be real. 2020 has just been a doozy of a year. And I feel a heaviness for where we are as a, in this country. I feel a heaviness for my own growth in it, for the kind of what now, what about music right now when our world just looks bizarre and we're, we have so many big things I feel like I'm grappling with and growing with now. And to that point, I think I'm always growing. And I would say that this path, although we have like this arc and this trajectory and I'm here today, I know there's going to be more circuitous loops to it. I know Mm -hmm. that in five years, it's going to look really different than it does today. Yeah. Um, And I think for me, that posture of stay curious, stay present, um, live from a place that feels authentic is about as, as, is just where I am now. And I always am growing and I'm different today than even our interview was last week. Just where am I growing? What's happening? Um, what's been the week, you know, like, but, um, did that answer your that question? And I think you had us a follow up with the well, six month thing. Well, basically, the direction I'm headed in is, um, I've been asking this question: Do we have like is suffering necessary to reach these places? Oh, like, is yeah. it possible to not suffer and learn such deep truths about yourself? And I have come to the conclusion that I think yes, it is necessary to some extent. Now, do we have to massively suffer or suffer a little bit? I'm not sure, but I think some adversity is necessary in the process of refining us and finding out who we are. And so I really, for me, try to present this and and really think about it because it's an uncomfortable truth about growth, I think, is that like those hard moments in our life, what's happening like right now in 2020 is not great, but for people who are able to shift their posture, it's growth, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I've been reading this book called Emergent Strategy for a little while, and it essentially speaks to how we are as human reflected in nature. So if you want to talk about growth, I talk about this with my students a lot. When you prune back a tree, at first it feels 
abusive. It feels weird. It's like, why are you cutting all this back? And, and it seems not okay. And then a couple months later, the growth is exponential and you think, wow. And then I think the same thing is true. I mean, just I'm looking at trees out my window right now of root systems, you know, adversity and winds force the roots to go deeper into the earth. So if we really want to take that in terms of us as humans, I think there is some truth if we look around to that. I will say, though, just to speak to this as two white privileged humans, we Mm -hmm. will never know the type of adversity that many of our people, friends of color, experience every day. And I think where I feel the most grieved is just looking at our, our systemic culture of racism and knowing that my experience of adversity and suffering will never be similar to these people and what they experience. Yeah. So I I, hold that loosely, you know? So I'm not at all trying to sort of be comparative because yeah, it doesn't really compare. Yeah. Um, But I also, um, there are some uh, African-American, there's an African-American couple in our church small group. And when the George Floyd stuff happened, they were like, we would be, happy to run basically a sort of a race related small group yeah. thing. Like what's the, what, like just what's going on? Like, let's talk about this kind of thing. It was one of the first times I ever felt really like a safe space for me to say things that like I've seen, I've grown up with, like all of that and getting to know them through this. Uh, there's like a strength there that I think is forged through some of that adversity that they've been, that they've seen that I've never seen. Yeah. And I wonder too, if like, again, I'm not saying that the, the adversity is like good. I'm just saying that it can also cause in all of our lives in our individual ways, a growth that might not have happened without it yeah. is all I'm saying. And I Resilience, think that's really, yeah. I think that's really important just to think about, not necessarily to make into a big deal, but I just know that times I've struggled in my life, I've not always embraced the struggle as growth is on the other side. I've often sort of pushed it away and said, this is bad, but totally try, trying to find perspectives, I think, where that growth caused who I am as a person now. Absolutely. And, and I, am I grateful for that in many ways? Yes. So yeah, there's a lot of horrible tragedies in the world that I'm not trying to just explain away as, oh, there's growth, but... In a general sense, I think you know what I mean. I do, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so do you want to speak a little bit to, um, or a lot bit, this is you know your interview, uh, a lot bit to just the work you're doing at Longy, what it looks like, how it's structured, what you feel like your goals are with the program, the coaching program. Sure. And just kind of what that looks like, how it got started, any of those kinds of things. Yeah, sure. So when I... When we found out we were moving to Boston, I reached out to the president of the school, Karen Zorn, who I have a really deep admiration for as a leader and as a human. And I just said, I believe in the mission of your school. It's really at the intersection of music and social change, music and social justice. And they really do put, um, it's more than just words. A lot of our classes and the work that we're doing is geared towards helping musicians to see themselves more broadly and how they might be able to use their music to make a real meaningful impact in the world. That for me works um, and feels really important. So 
She said, yeah, we're shifting our curriculum. It's called the Catalyst Curriculum. We're doing away with all of the traditional things. And we're basically saying for grad school, people should come and be able to figure out who they are, what they value, what they're passionate about, and what projects they really want to bring forth. And we'll provide you with the kind of incubation period to do that. Along with that, we need somebody to manage a program that will help them figure out those things. (laughs) And so um, we just hired an organization by the name of Graydon, which Essentially, the, the Graydon is an international coaching organization that um, gives tools to educators and schools to empower education systems to use coaching as an additional tool for the way that we engage with one another. Mm. And so we hired Graydon. They did a bunch of trainings for us to give us the coaching skills. And then they basically said, Ashley, you're a professional musician. This work is deeply connected to the work you've already done and want to do with musicians in the future. Build a program. So I thought, gosh, what am I, what do I want this program to look like? And essentially, there's three parts of our program that every student, especially grad students that come, go through. It's required for grad students, but undergrads have it as well. It's just not a required part. Each student gets to have individual career coaching sessions, and it's not just about career. It's called career, but it's very much centered on who are you, what matters to you in your spare time, what do you do, how might that intersect with a future career, have you even thought about that intersection before? Um, so we each student gets two of those a semester. We do a coaching foundations course that deals not only with the value side, but the lens side where we might be getting stuck. Like there's an activity we do where I toss out a bunch of words. Like when I say the word love, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? When I say the word money, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Mm -hmm. When I say the word audition, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And they all type it in the chat. What's your first word, Ryan? Auditions. Uh, Auditions would be next. That's a good one. That doesn't come up very often. But yeah, usually it's like, oh, scary, fear, judgment, right? So we talk about what would it be like for if that is your default, what would be a helpful one? What would be a helpful next default to replace and to have a shift there? So that's an example of one of the activities. Um, So we basically lay this foundation in five really intense sessions with the students when they first come to Longy. Um, we talk about the gremlin and the champion. The gremlin is our self-limiting beliefs, the imposter syndrome. And we basically say, what would it be like to advocate for yourself, the champion, the one that believes in you without question? And the super powerful, vulnerable activity where they actually speak out loud their champion. And you wouldn't believe how many times I get goosebumps hearing people say out loud, I am enough, I am beautiful, music is fun, I am supported, you know? And what would it be like if we did this more with each other? What would shift? Um, I remember doing this class once, and it was I've done it at Longy a bunch, but I did it at a school in Fargo. And I remember this French horn player coming up to me afterwards, tears just streaming down her face and, she was like, Mrs. Hall, I'm going to go to the tattoo parlor right now and get music is fun and I am enough tattooed right here. And I was like, yeah, you go and do that and send me a picture of your tattoo. Yeah, um, nice. But it's that work that I think is just so important um, for musicians, for all humans, but 
you know, for people who are so focused and so driven by this, this love of music and this desire to get better at music to remember that they are whole in other parts of their lives. Um, So, yeah, so that, and then I run a speaker series every week that's called The Multifaceted Career. And I started this series because, again, as we sort of talked about at the very beginning of this interview, I really wanted students and all of us to expand our narratives around musician success. And I think sometimes, at least for my, our generation, ours, is you had like the two paths or the three paths, like orchestral track and the college teaching track and the soloist chamber music track, right? Sure, yeah. And if you did like a side job or a fallback thing, then somehow you aren't, you're a failure. You're a failure, (laughs) yeah, exactly, wow. (laughs) You're a failure. And, And so I was like, that's just a bunch of crap. That's not okay. And we have to start, I mean, we say it, Lonji and one of my life coach friends, Dana Vargas, talks about the importance. She's an opera singer, mostly oratorio singer. And she says, you know, we have to start giving people this idea of correlating careers right away. Because all of us as creatives will have times in our life where we're holding multiple careers simultaneously. And that does not make us not a musician. (laughs) Right. So that's essentially what I get to do all day. I just get to talk to, to... young musicians and um, help them see how beautiful and capable that they already are. And the cool thing about coaching, this form of coaching, is that not only do we believe that they're capable and whole, but we believe that the answers already lie within them and that our job as coaches is just to learn how to ask really effective, powerful questions that draw out what's already inside that maybe they haven't had another human to reflect back to. And Sure. It's great work. So that's what I get to do most of the time. And I get to hang out with some trumpet students here and there too. So it's it's cool. Yeah, I think one of the things you said a few times in there that I would love to, for you to expand upon is it's it. you said often, what would it look like if this? Or what mm. would it look like if this? And in and, and the work that I do with my clients, it's very similar is in practicing an instrument, we can design something that specifically targets a weakness, right? We can mm-hmm. say, I will do this for upper register. I'll do this for articulation. Right. But in sort of the personal development arena, it seems to be significantly more difficult to design something to specifically target your your weaknesses with honesty or patience. Um, and it's essentially how do we deal with it in the moment. But it seems like this is the way that it's done, in, in in all ways is just imagining what would the best version of this or the most optimal version look like. And then sort of almost like a visualization exercise, but that being the thing that strengthens that muscle. Is that kind of, I mean, it sounds like that's been your experience, but I'd love more thoughts on this. Right. And so the power of coaching is that it really raises intrinsic motivation within the coachee. And so the fact that I'm not an expert on you means that when I ask you an open-ended question and say, well, what would it be like? What would patience look like? How would you be patient? What um, Then you would all of a sudden just be like, well, it would look like blah, 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 blah. And you would spit out all this stuff. And then the coach, me or whoever would say, what are you committed to doing? If that really is what patience looks like, what would need to shift? 
And so again, I'm not giving, it's non-directive. I'm not telling this student, this is what you have to do to get more patient. But it's literally saying, if this is really important to you, what are you committed to doing? What would that look like? And again, I don't know what they're going to say. And so I think when you raise a student's and other humans' intrinsic motivation, the research shows that you're much, they are much more likely to follow through with the thing. And so because it comes from them and not from this like hierarchical being of authority. And so that's why I think the work can be really powerful. And then if there's this follow-up, how did that go this week? How did your goals around exercise work for you? What might you need to shift? Then again, it's all drawing those answers out from them. Yeah. Um, is that, that's, I yeah, mean, that's yeah. what I think of. So one of the, I have a, a it's going to take me a second to explain this, but it'll totally make sense when I'm done. Um, I have been introduced to Whole30 a few times. Mm-hmm. Whole30 is a 30-day, for those that don't know, Whole30 is a 30-day sort of you eat whole foods and no sugar, I think no alcohol, no grains, and no dairy for 30 days. And so it's not so much a diet as it is a period of time you're committed to this particular thing to learn what happens, to right. learn what your body might feel like if you remove those kinds of processed, sugary whatevers, Right. And so I was like, I don't want to do this because I need carbohydrates because I work out really heavy and I have to do this. So like, there's just like, I can't do that. Right. And then finally through, you know, dating, being with Kathleen, her brother recommended it. We were finally, I was like, you know what? I should just give it a shot and see what happens. And at the end of the 30 days, it was shocking to me um, that I, A, had energy without carbohydrates um, and I'm not saying I, I eat carbohydrates right now, so I'm not saying I'm vilifying them, just that it's possible. Mm-hmm. B, I finally, for the first time, felt like my stomach wasn't upset all the time. I didn't realize that like the distress my stomach was in all the time wasn't didn't have to be that way. Like, just because that's what it was doesn't mean that's how it had to be. And then I just feel like, yeah, I, I understood that I could feel better, but I couldn't have imagined that level or that feeling of my body without doing this thing. Mm -hmm. So now if I were to tell someone do Whole30, I would be trying to say there's this feeling that like you may not know yet, but I highly encourage you to do this thing because it might help guide you to that. That's about how I feel like personal development is. When you're someone who's gone through that journey of asking the tough questions and sitting in the hard part and crying and like purging and like then you get to the other side and you feel better mm-hmm. or if that's, that's that's such a simplistic way to say that but um and so but there's people out there who may feel like I'm good even if they could use that kind of I'm going to go through it like feeling like you're pretty good like nothing's really that bad almost as if you have to hit rock bottom to decide you're going to do this kind of work but right. I would imagine literally everybody would benefit from this kind of thing for you, what is your encouragement to people just to just to start thinking about what that would look like? Maybe why is this work worth it? Like what kind of feelings are associated with um, on the other side of this? Maybe even through your clients or your students that you've seen, just like kind of what's the other side of it look like for um, people who have uh, yourself or people that you've seen go through it? Yeah, I mean, I think, The cool thing about doing this work as a professional musician is I sort of get to oscillate between coach and mentor and advisor, right? Sort of to your point, once you've been, 
I have experience in the field, so I know a lot of this. And so sometimes in my work with students, I'll often say, would it be helpful for me to shift into mentor mode right now? Or are you looking for some advice? I'm happy to share some advice. Just know that I'm not coaching you. And so it's this knowing when to bring out the tools uh, and which tools would be helpful. I would say (laughs) I had a student even just this past week who just, we finished a coaching um, she found like Brene on, on her own, or maybe she's just heard me talk so much about Brene that she's been reading these books. And she literally just said, coaching has been transforming my life because not because of me as a coach, but because it's like this plumb line or this fixed point where she can see her own progress every time she sees me because she knows that she's different each time and she can see how much she's grown. And we have, you know, eight different dates of reflections from where she was when we first started talking to where she is today and how much of a journey she's been on. So that's what I would say is that- It's like self-awareness, really. It is. That's that's really what it is. It's awareness raising. I think that's what shocks people so much about it is that they, I had a coaching yesterday with a really beautiful soul human. She says, I don't even think I've ever said these things out loud. I don't know what's happening to me. And I just said, all I did was just ask you an open question. It's all in there. And, you know, it's awareness. It's awareness raising. It's providing space for students to sift through their thoughts and to really think about what's important. And how often do, do does a someone that's sort of an authority figure provide that kind of space for someone to just be deeply introspective. And I think if I were to kind of sum up all of my experiences teaching at other schools is that's what I longed for, for students is for an opportunity for them to just hit pause and think about, am I taking care of myself in music and outside of music? Is there, you know, we do this exercise called the fulfillment wheel where they look at a snapshot of their life and sort of what's the most important things and it changes. And so having this ability to say, ah, you know, family was really important to me and it's still really important. But in this season, I really need to prioritize my spiritual path, you know, above that or whatever it is for the, for the person and for them to be able to do the work and for it to not be all on me (laughs) is is powerful. It's really, really cool. So I don't know if I totally answered your question, but that's that's what comes up. And that's why I'm still doing this work. And that's why I think it's sort of my life calling <laughs> in addition. But it's not that the trumpet's gone, right? It's just this, I'm made to do a lot of things in the world. And I also realized this about myself. I really like teaching the trumpet, but I can't talk about the trumpet all day. Yeah, I yeah. really admire those university professors that can do 30 lessons a week and live and breathe trumpet. Um, I couldn't, (laughs) and I knew that wasn't my path. This work I can do all day. It really brings me to life. So it's really my biggest advice for people is figure out what, who you are, what brings you to life and figure out ways to create that in your career and do those things. Yeah. It's, I had, I just thought it's like, even through the last interview we did and then all the way through this one, this thought just popped into my mind as you are someone who teaches trumpet, like I help you get better and you're someone who coaches. Mm -hmm. 
Now, it's interesting. I would be curious for your thoughts on is is coaching something that can fit into the trumpet teaching thing, or is there enough to do on that form or in that way that it's almost like there's not really quote room for it to really explore it? Yeah, it's an excellent question. One of the things that Graydon, this coaching organization, gives to us at Longy is this ability for us to deliver these coaching courses in-house to our faculty and staff. So we have over 60 people who have gone through the coaching training, including some of our incredible high-level performing faculty who have done it. And they say, my gosh, what would it be like for me to take some of these skills into my private studio lessons? How much more open would my students feel if they were asked an open question and I listened for their response before I immediately jumped in directively? So I've seen a shift there, but I've seen a huge shift for myself. When I'm teaching master classes, for instance, and I'm listening to a student play where I only have a 20-minute window to really give them something that they'll be able to take with them. Usually the first question I ask is, what went really well? What are some of your strengths? Okay, if you could pick out two things about that or one thing about that that you would want to focus on and would really want to grow, what would that be? So it's a coach question, but it's not like, I noticed this and you cracked that note and this thing didn't go well. And I noticed in bar three that, you know, it, it's none of that. It's this very much, it's a, it's a more, um, I don't know if it's like a compassion, more compassionate way, but it feels to me like a softer way to really get them to tell me how I can help them best. And I've been finding it to be really helpful and in my master classes, but also in my lessons. Although it sometimes means that we talk more than we play, but I hope that it's helpful for my trumpet students because I really want them. I mean, I think the best teachers are the ones that teach their students how to teach themselves. So Mm -hmm. I hope that what this approach does for my students is help them to go to the practice room and say, okay, what went well? What should I probably not practice again? Because it clearly is fine. Now, how would I address those spots that maybe weren't so efficient? And so for me, this type of teaching, I hope is yielding a more growth mindset in the way that my students are approaching their own growth and their practice. Um, And that's what's shifted. I know I'm a different teacher now than I was when I was so fixated on how to point out everything that didn't go well and give them every tool that they needed to quote fix it. And it just didn't seem, it wasn't a kind way. And I'm glad I have some different tools. Yeah. So, Do yeah. you see, obviously Longy has really embraced mm-hmm. what the value of coaching specifically is. Do you see this as something that will take hold and become part of the culture of universities everywhere? Or do you feel like it's something that possibly somehow wouldn't integrate, even though I feel like the answer is no. Just like, what are your thoughts on that? I think 2020 has really laid bare this deeper why behind music. And I think all of us are going deep into um, what do we bring to our students and how can we set them up for careers that are viable and essential and that um, don't lead them to burnout. And I think I hope that more conservatories are taking this approach and are thinking about ways to integrate this beyond just like we have a counseling center. Um, I think the thing that's really special about how Longy has done this is they've 
built it into the ethos. It's from our very first training, our president and our COO and our dean and our, you know, everyone from the top all the way down to some of our faculty were there getting these skills because it's important to the way that we engage as humans with each other. And they really saw this as the thread that links together this um, atmosphere that we're hoping to create for our students. So the thing about Longi that's special is it's really small. So it's really mobile and it can make these kinds of changes quick. Institutional change on big levels takes a lot of time. Um, but I think it's definitely possible. And I know that there are institutions that have coaches that do some of this work. Um, but I hope that it becomes more the norm. And I hope it becomes the way that we engage our music students in the future, because I think it'll set them up for a much more meaningful life in music as they get out. Totally agree. Yeah. Gosh, I had a question, but your answer was so good. I forgot it. Um, <laughs> Man, yeah, it's it's totally gone. I, I I totally agree. I just think that there's there are so many people in our field who do this because that's the thing that they do. That's the thing that they did, and it may not be super fulfilling at this stage in their life. And I feel that a lot of us, uh, myself included, for a very long time, are very results based. It was I do totally. this thing, and the justification is winning this job or trying to have a provide a life. And trying to, you know, simplify the process toward, yes, that can be a great goal, but being able to sit in the process, being able to be thankful for what I have right now is also a really important part, I feel. And the more people that are out there saying that, the more people are going to hear that message. And I just think it is a, a matter of people hearing it and being able to have some sort of structure to experience it for themselves. With that in mind, uh, for the listeners out there, if they're interested in sort of exploring what this would look like for themselves. Are there any sort of, like you were talking about sort of like a, a word association, are there any other types of ways that people could start to think about this for themselves and to start this process, you know, without guidance right now, but maybe leading sure. them to be able to still experience some of the benefits? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this activity very peripherally in my description of some of the coaching foundations work we do with the students, but I'll break this down because I think this could be helpful to some of your listeners. So this fulfillment wheel or life wheel is something that people can do that's an easy way to objectively look like a snapshot at your life today. So if you draw a big circle on your paper and you divide it into eight pizza slices and then you basically imagine what are eight roles or values or interests of yours that take up your time that are really important to you. So for me, it would be uh, my spiritual life, my family, um, trumpet, coaching, speaking, exercise, adventure, you know, so you think about like, what are those things that make me feel fulfilled in life as a whole? Then you think about 10 out of 10, what would it look like to be 100% fulfilled in all of these categories? And then you say, now, where am I actually today? And you shade in each of those little wheels. So like a four out of 10 in spiritual life, it's a six out of 10 in family life. And you just go around the, the wheel. <clears throat> and then from there, that could be enough, and you could just say, like, huh, that's really interesting to look at that. Where this gets deeper 
is that then you would do what's called an order of importance. You would put it right next to the fulfillment wheel and you would just put one through eight, the numbers one through eight. And then you would basically say, if I were to rank those eight things, number one being the most important thing to my life right now, and number eight being it's important, but it's not as important right this moment, like travel. Well, I can't go anywhere, so it's not that right important right this moment. So then you rank those, and then you do the comparison. So if for you, spiritual life, family, trumpet is the top three, then you would look at your scores in the fulfillment wheel, and then you would start to ask yourself these open questions. If this is really important, what would it take for this to move up to a eight? <laughs> What would it look, what would need to shift in my time management in order for me to get more time on the trumpet, for instance, because it is high in how important it is to me. So why am I not giving it that time? What would it take? So that's a a really, it's a pretty easy tool, but it's a really revealing tool for helping you reprioritize your why and what's important to you right now. And knowing that this might shift in two months. Right, yeah. So yeah, that's something that, we do in our family, at least, that's helpful. Yeah, so anybody listening, that's, I mean, <laughs> you're just taking stock of what is and then comparing it to what you imagined, your best version or your most ideal version. I feel like it's a simple thing. It just takes the time to sit down and do it. So I highly recommend that. Just try it out. You you might, there's really no way of saying it'll be worth it or not, but I feel like you'll to- you'll learn something and that's the whole idea, so. It won't hurt, um, that's for sure. Yeah, right, and I guess I don't mean like, <laughs> it'll be worth it in the sense of like, it's good or bad. It's just like, to me, this kind of work isn't about whether or not I can objectively say, I'm glad I did that or I'm not glad I did it. It's not really like a a, a sort of ROI based That's right. <laughs> activity. That's right. You're not thinking, well, what's the return? How, what am I going to get from this? It's more of like a, I kind of want to just open the conversation with myself and see like what is there that I may not have been paying attention to because I haven't asked the questions. That's right. Yeah. And often we just don't ask the questions. We just go into default mode. And um, yeah, so it's a really helpful tool. Yeah. Sure. Because we are changing, I mean, constantly. So yeah, just a structure for you to be able to start that. So uh, this has been awesome. Do you have any sort of final thoughts, ideas, things that are important to you that maybe you say in classes to help encourage people? It could be, you know, all the crazy stuff in 2020 just to help people (laughs) stay strong, that kind of idea. Um, if not, I, I put you on the spot there a little bit. Well, I'm just thinking of in my classes, what I always say to people. And one of the books I always recommend is this book by Elizabeth Gilbert, Big Magic, Embracing Creativity Beyond Fear. And there's this quote that I often share in my classes that just says, what is creative living? Any life that is driven more strongly by curiosity than by fear. So my advice to people is stay curious, stay open, be flexible. (laughs) You never know where life is going to take you. Um, Yeah. So that's my advice. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Um, If somebody's listening to this and they think, Ashley sounds awesome. I really need to make sure that I get in touch with her so I can tell her how awesome she sounds. How would somebody do that? You can find me easily on Facebook. 
I, um, yeah, just look up Ashley Hall and you'll find a sweet picture of me and my family. Um, AshleyHallTrumpet.com is my professional website. And coming very soon, there will be a website launched, which if you follow me on Facebook, you'll find out about it. But I'll be opening up a larger coaching studio for musicians pretty soon. So stay tuned for that news. Awesome. So check that out and uh, make sure you let her know uh, how awesome this episode was for you. Um, it was awesome for me. Uh, if you, for some reason, probably don't, but if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me at that'snotspit.com and then on Facebook and Instagram at that's not spit. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating or review on iTunes, that'd be pretty cool. And don't forget to share it on social media so other people can find it. Ashley, thank you again one more time for doing this episode a second time, giving me more of your time. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks again for having me. I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.